found it. It's the Japan What Podcast, coming at you from the back end of Tokyo. The armpit of Asia. In the Toshihisa To Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. It's me, Matthew, pmbigelow.com, which is where you can also conveniently go to get photos, show notes, and donations, uh, submissions, and more. And I am having what you are having, Mr. Listener or Ms. Listener. Oh, got to turn that on. It's my new plugin. It's called the Galaxy Tape Echo. Uh, I bought it, so I'm using it. Hope you like it. Um, took a while to fernagle that. All right, well, this is the Japan What uh, podcast. We uh, talk about AI markets in Japan, the rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific region, news analysis, odd items, and more. And uh, let's begin. We got a busy show today. Tokyo is, of course, in the middle of a heat wave, as it always is this time of year. And despite what everybody says, it just always seems to be like the weather, right? I don't know what you think, but uh, the idea that uh, global warming is going to come and kill us all. I'm not sure if I believe it, uh, but what I do think is going to come and kill us all um, is uh, is if these popular uh, items that uh, Sora News 24 is trying to promote uh, come to fruition in a cross-border situation. So I'm introducing this new product um, as an effort to stem the possibility of its spread uh, through uh, the writer uh, Casey Basile on SoraNews24.com. And this is, of course, Japan's new ice cream fondue pizza promises the great taste of ice cream and mushrooms together. Sora News is, of course, the uh, hate read. I like them now, but when you go into something, you should fulfill that duty. And I went into this segment intending to hate read it. And throughout the adventure of Sora News 24, I've come to kind of like them. But still, my stance on the podcast is it is indeed a hate read. An adventure for your stomach from Japan's low-key crazy pizza maniacs. Okay. This summer, we've been seeing some, well, let's call them, unorthodox pizzas in Japan. In June, there was the Pizza Hut uh, Wiener Coffee Pizza. And earlier this month, we got our hands and mouths on Domino's Pizza Japan's Pickles Pizza. But Nagoya-based chain Aoki's Pizza, which also has branches in Aichi, Gifu, and Mie prefectures, isn't about to get outweirded by the bigger chains. Aoki's is, after all, the company that brought us such wonders as the 18-meat Meat Mountain Pizza Sandwich and the horror-themed Bloody Zombino Pizza. Their latest creation? Ice Cream Fondue Pizza. Okay. I'll be posting photos of this at MatthewPMBigelow.com if you are interested in looking at uh, these insane creations. Uh, we'll be uh, collating them there. Um, Aoki's, dis- Aoki's, okay, this is the name of the, the chain restaurant, says Aoki's. So Aoki's describes it as a summer adventure pizza, and you will have an adventurous palate to try it. The uniquely shaped crust forms a crater in the center, which serves as a vessel for vanilla ice cream that you dip your slice of pizza into, similar to plunking morsels of food into a fondue pot. Um, 
Now, there's sweet pizzas, and we all know about those, right? And we also know all about um, savory pizzas. This is combining them together. You still get pepperoni on this ice cream pizza that you dip into fondue. The provided vanilla ice cream is from Haagen-Dazs, so you can expect a rich quality cream. The ice cream fondue pizza also comes with maple syrup and chocolate sauce if you want even more sweet sensations to tickle your taste buds. What makes the ice cream especially strange, though, is that while it's sweet elements that set it apart, it's not a pure dessert pizza. Before you dip the slices in ice cream or drizzle syrup sauce on them, they have just the classic ingredients of mozzarella cheese, pepperoni, and sliced mushrooms. So yes, with the ice cream fondue pizzas, Aokis are proposing that you get mushroom, pork, and ice cream in your mouth all at the same time. The ice cream fondue pizza is available for limited quantities for a limited time and only in medium size. Price that. How much do you think it is, Mr. or Ms. Listener? Well, it's 2,380 yen, and how do you convert that into dollars these days? What do you think, Mr. or Ms. Listener? 17 American greenbacks. Ooh, I'm not sure if I would taste this. Uh, Domino's now sells tapioca boba pizza in Japan. Oh, ooh, recommended stories from sorenews24.com. Their algorithm is crazy. Uh, so there's a whole idea that we shouldn't be reporting on Weird Japan. And I think just focusing exclusively on Weird Japan is not good. There's certainly an element of competitiveness in the Japanese markets that will lead to weird creations being released. And these go through meetings, these go through taste tests, these go through product development teams and all of that. It's not just some person making stuff in their backyard and taking a picture of it and putting it onto a blog. This is corporate strategy we're looking at here. So uh, while I can see that some people who just say, what, you have a weird Japan blog? Oh, how creative. No, 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 no. It's 98% serious. Very, very serious. Uh, 2% weird because you go around Japan long enough and one thing is consistently 2%. It's weird. And that's today's weird story. Do you think these people were high or not high when they came up with this pizza? High. Or not high. Teenagers. High teenagers. Doesn't it sound like uh, a bunch of teenagers got into a bag of weed and their parents weren't home and then they raided the fridge and made some crazy pizza and they think it's the best thing ever. And then they try it the next day and it's disgusting, but they were just so high. It tasted so good. Have you ever been there in your life where you were so high? Everything tasted so good. This tastes great, man. This is so good. We should market it. It would sell crazy amounts. Totally. We got to sell this. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Hi, teenagers. Um, we got a lot to do today. Uh, the Society 5.0 section is a bit hefty. Um, let's just take a look uh, at, well, we started with high or not high. I have another high or not high. Hi. Or not high. This comes to us from the Asahi uh, Shimbum on July 22nd, 2023. And we're recording this on July 25th, 2023. And of course, this podcast is not breaking news podcast. I don't, 
I don't really find breaking news or daily news to be that worthwhile or interesting. It's just like, oh, uh, the president plans to meet somebody in August. And you're like, well, okay, I guess, whatever. Um, But when you have uh, an ongoing frame, like a weekly frame or even a monthly frame, and you take certain elements that correlate and put them together, it kind of gives you a, uh, what I believe is a more focused view on important elements that are happening, uh, maybe connected to together, maybe not connected to get together, but still have this similarity. They're in simpatico uh, for some reason, um, as opposed to just a barrage of news headlines uh, that you find in the daily newspaper. So yeah, this is a couple of days old, but it's still pretty new to me. High or not high, risque photo shoots banned at outdoor pools in Saitama parks. Um, and there's well, there's a picture of it. And this comes to us from the Asahi.com, uh, Asia and Japan Watch. There will be a picture, I'm going to screen grab it right now, of elements that describe um, poses that will be banned in these Saitama swimming pools. Saitama, provocative poses and gestures suggesting bikini removal will be banned at several outdoor pools in Saitama Prefecture when photographers and their models use the sites for shoots this fall. The local parks association released the temporary rules, including a graphic that illustrates unacceptable poses so that photo sessions in September and October can proceed as scheduled. It is a partial reversal after the association earlier pulled the plug on shoots that pushed the limits of good taste. In June, the Saitama Park and Greenery Association, which manages three parks with pools, asked six organizations to cancel their June swimsuit shoots at Shirakobotato Water Park in Koshigaya and Kawagoe Water Park in Kawagoe. Enough was enough, the association said. Pool shoots would no longer be allowed. But Saitama Governor Motohiro Ono partially rescinded the order because the past rules pertained only to Shirakobato Park and because four of the organizations did not violate those rules. Um, it goes on and on and on. Um, all organizations and individuals in charge of an event will also have to sign pledges stating they will abide by the new temporary rules. <laughs> The pool shoots are scheduled on 16 days in September and 10 in October. As for the longer term, the Saitama Prefectural Government will consult experts and decide on formal rules by February. Okay, a couple of ideas here. One is that if you are um, suggesting that you're going to be pulling off your pants bottoms, your swim trunks bottoms, or taking off your top and posting that, um, online, yeah, let's just say a lot of these photo shoots probably aren't even for like grab your bottles or something like that. It's just all Instagram and social media these days. Uh, if that gets out in public and you put in a hashtag, we're at this pool, it might suggest to people that that's where you go to take off your swimming trunks or your swimsuits in public. And that's just simply not the case. There's going to be families there and you want to have a fun time. You can dress in the nice bikinis, but you know, don't turn it into a, a soft core porn um, event for your Instagram followers. That makes sense on one side. Uh, another side is that there are recently a lot of um, Kurdish and uh, and uh, you know uh, other Muslim minorities that have been moving into Saitama in greater and greater numbers. And one other argument is that they might have an influence on the amount of skin that women should be allowed to show in public. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just trying to present multiple arguments uh, as to why this sort of thing might happen. 
One argument is, well, we don't want to turn the place into a nudist place for Instagram models because there's going to be families there. Um, and, you know, it's, well, it's a swimsuit photo shoot, so there's no families there that day. But, you know, you're, you're on, on Instagram on a busy train and you see this place with women that might be taking their clothes off. You just might end up going there on your spare time thinking that that's what's going to happen there. And it's simply not. And then the other idea is, what if they're worried about... <laughs> Um, modesty laws that are uh, uh, bu- that uh, don't don't exist on the books, but bu- but exist in in a greater number of people's minds who are immigrating to those areas. Uh, I'm not saying that is happening, but those are just some ideas as to why. Am I high? Are they high? Is this high, or is it not high? High or not high? Again, I'll be posting the photo of the guidelines for unacceptable shoots and poses. They're all sexy women uh, on MatthewPMBigelow.com. Go there and uh, think about what I've just said. Moving on to the next topic. Uh, Let's just do a little bit of economy before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast. Here we go. Japan to see price hikes on 35,000 food, drink items by end of 2023. Now, I was just in Canada, and I was amazed at how expensive things have gotten there. Like, four or five drinks and, like, a side of app fries, and it's, like, 100 bucks or Ichimayen. At a place that's in a small town, kind of fancy, but not that fancy. Uh, I'm used to that being 30 or 40 or $50, especially in a small town. But this is uh, coming to us from the Mainichi, uh, Japan's national daily since 1922, uh, from Kyoto News. <laughs> Everything's Kyoto News. Japanese consumers will have seen hikes on 30,009 food and beverages, uh, food and beverage products by October as retailers pass on higher costs to protect their profits, according to a credit research company. Uh, the total, including the hikes in coming months, already eclipses the 2022, that would be the year, total of 25,768 items, um, Teikoku Data Bank said in July. The company also maintained its forecast for the full year at around 35,000 items. Uh, and October is going to see the highest spike. The added burden on households has reduced purchasing power, making it un- increasingly unlikely com- companies will continue increasing prices at such a rapid pace. The company cited rises in electricity and labor costs, along with a weaker yen pushing up import prices. Uh, but the company said the monthly total could end um, at over 8,000 increases in October as more companies are likely to announce price changes. The survey compiled price data from 105 listed and 90 non-listed companies in the food and beverage industry. All right. doesn't say which items are going up and how they're going to increase, by the way, which for me is telling that uh, it's going to be worse than worse and worse. So I think a lot of the world um, just jacked up their prices and are dealing with it now Japan has been incrementally increasing, but the yen has been losing its power 
um, over time. And let's be honest, this is probably all mostly having to do with all of the money printing that went on during COVID. We shut down the economy, screwed with all the supply chains. China came in and commandeered a large percent of those supply chains, sent our um, complex uh, advanced economies into a tailwind, all these governments around the world printed trillions of dollars, then those major corporations managed to buy up everything, pennies on the dollar at the before the inflation set in. And now those that are living, uh, those of us living in at the, near the bottom of the uh, money supply, where the money is diluted and dirtied, uh, you know, through all these organizations are having to deal with the price increases. So you get what you deserve. I was against the lockdowns. I was against shutting down the economy. I was against the school closures. But if everybody, you know, this is what you voted for is essentially what I'm saying. If you wanted all of the lockdowns, if you bought into all the hysteria, if you said, govern me harder, daddy, um, I'll do whatever you say. Now you're living with the consequences and it's probably just going to get worse. And uh, most people don't even have this idea in their head that like the things that they decided as a society are coming back to haunt them, uh, you know, because it wasn't good choices. Uh, they just want to forget all about it and go, oh, my God, why is this happening? I cut off my hand. Why can't I use my hand anymore? Um, uh, expect expect more of the same. And uh, fewer Japanese now are traveling. Ten years ago, the Japanese were like the major travelers of the world, one of the top three, one of the top ten, just traveling all the time. Now the yen's plummeted, Every, there's fewer jobs out there, and all, the inflation is going crazy, and that's going to eat into your budget, which leads into the next topic. Three million people in Japan holding second jobs to make ends meet. Um, Three million, this is, comes to us from the Asahi Shimbun. Um, uh, this is giving us kind of a, a dire look at the economy. There's going to be really good things going on with the economy in terms of like automotive and stuff like that. But, well, that is a significant amount of uh, Japan's GDP pie. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't exist within that framework. And I don't see a lot of... Um, I don't see a lot of pizzazz going on these days. A study found that 3.05 million people in Japan held side jobs last year to make ends meet. The Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications carries out a survey on the nation's employment structure every five years. The latest finding, released July 21st, represented an increase of 600,000 over the previous study in 2017. The ministry surveyed around 540,000 households nationwide last October. Those who held side jobs represented 4.8% of the total, uh, a 0.9 percentage point increase from the previous survey. Only 2.5% of regular workers held a side job. However, 7.2% of people in irregular employment did so. The wholesale and retail sectors accounted for the largest number of people holding second jobs at 420,000. The figure for medical care and social welfare sectors came to 400,000. So we're talking like pretty important job segments here. Um, wholesale and retail sectors, well, you can kind of expect those people to work second jobs, but a lot of those jobs aren't really supposed to be for working professionals, right? Retail is supposed to be for like part-timers. Um, but more and more people are finding themselves as the population ages stuck in those jobs. And medical and social welfare, social welfare probably accounts for a major part of that because that would be all the child care and all of the uh, senior daycare centers and stuff like that. And this is what they do to make this sound way better than it is. They'll say, well, the average wage for wealth uh, senior daycare centers has increased 50% over the past 10 years. 
But what they don't account for is that all of the people losing their jobs that were making a lot more money than that uh, at a corporation that no longer needs them now find a job where they have to take a 30% pay cut for their next job. That next job is in the social welfare industry. So they're making 30% less money, but the statistics show that that job that they now have is indeed paying a lot more than it used to. So isn't that great? Isn't that great? Um, this is called juking the stats if you've ever watched The Wire. The study also found that 4.93 million people who currently do not have a second job are thinking about finding one. This represented an increase of 930,000 people from the last study. And it goes on and on. Um, uh, so there we go. Uh, the idea of Japanese people being lifelong employees does exist, but it's uh, it still exists in a mass percentage of the population because of the aging demographics. All those people in their mid-40s and up, not all, but a significant amount of them have permanent positions. Uh, and those represent a larger demographic segment of the country as a whole. But the people under 40, uh, more and more of them are having irregular working schedules, uh, multiple jobs and things like that. They represent a smaller demographic, but it also represents the people moving up into society, uh, having to deal with um, totally drastic different work schedules and payment uh, income as well. So uh, not good, actually. It's it's a little startling, I, I imagine. And I was thinking about um, launching a side job as well recently, but there's it's just not like if, if you have way more people working more jobs and those jobs don't pay as well as they used to, people have way less discretionary income. So to try to get people to come into like a school or a training facility or even like developing hobbies and stuff like that, they're not going to have, there's not going to, the, the amount of people willing to do that is going to be shrinking more and more and more because of the job situation and because of the demographics. Uh, so there's that. Let's move on to the Japan Society 5.0. So let's get out of this economy. Come on, economy. Here we go. Okay, we're going to do this significant thing right now, and that is um, uh, quite, a, quite a decent analysis into the Society 5.0. This connects... Um, localized Japanese expertise into a connected international world of, of liberal ideas. And it's going to take, I did quite a bit of research for this. Um, we'll see where it goes, but I, I hope it's interesting. Um, this has to do with a lot with um, um, using AI for national security reasons uh, with the police. So let's begin. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example... So this is from the... I say this every time. That, that, that whatever it was, that song, that jingle, was made by the Japanese government 
And a lot of the language there, the fourth industrial revolution and so on, is world economic, um, specifically Klaus Schwab speak. He has a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, and when I was working in the telecom industry, running an AI class, um, the uh, Society 5.0 um, website for the Japanese government was uh, advocating for the co-working of telecommunications industries. And some of my students there were partially or somewhat involved with that to some extent. Not 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 rolling the dice and, and calling the shots, but let's just say they, oh yeah, I know about that. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it was. So this is from uh, the website reclaimthenet.org. Should I should I say it more dramatically with my new plugin because uh, I paid for it? I don't know. Let's just say this. This comes to us from reclaimthenet.org. It's kind of lame. <laughs> Um, but it also is published in a few other um, places like the Nikkei Shimbum and everything like that. But I use this um, website because it's concise and the amount of extraneous research that I did um, just makes it easier to maintain um, for this segment. If you're tired, so as this say, dystopian tech in the name of security, this comes to us from the writer Christina Maas. Oh, there, I didn't research her. I researched pretty much everything else about this article. Christina Moss. Christina is a reclaimed contributor who's interested in platforms, their policies, and their uh, ability to push social and cultural conditions. Um, Cameroon, this is other articles by Christina Moss. Cameroon to flood its largest city with mass surveillance. EU tries to justify support for scanning private messages with manipulative public poll results. Turkey bans companies from advertising on Twitter. Ubisoft confirms it may delete inactive accounts. One more, Fed now is here and the Federal Reserve says it's not a CBDC, but it would make one easier to implement. Aha, I like the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, that's about as federal as Federal Express. That's what uh, George Nuri from Coast to Coast AM would like to say. <laughs> yeah, those Americans are really good at uh, those types of uh, statements. And the uh, founding fathers would be rolling in their graves. That's what you got to do when you, when you talk with Americans on, on American radio. This is unconstitutional and, my gosh... I believe the founding fathers would be rolling in their graves. Okay, so let's go back to the idea here of this whole pre-crime thing. Um, where is it? Let's load it up. If you're tired of censorship and dystopian threats against civil liberties, subscribe to Reclaim the Net. Okay, that's how I didn't mean to read that. The Japan National Police Agency has decided to adopt AI-enhanced pre-crime surveillance cameras to bolster the security measures surrounding uh, very important people, VIPs or VIPs. This step comes in response to the commemoration of the shocking assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and the rising threats posed by what the government called, quote, lone offenders, end quote. I'm just reading this, so I'm not... You know, if you, if you have issue with the bias, uh, take issue with the bias. It's not me. I'm just reading it. The issue of AI and law enforcement is becoming commonplace globally. A 2019 study by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace revealed that 52 out of 176 nations surveyed were incorporating AI tools into their policing strategies, Nikkei Asia reported. Now, I've been, uh, I just started, a lot of this stuff I just started following out of interest. Oh, Nikkei Asia, they're about the economy. 
then I read all their stuff and it's like, well, you're tied up with FT.com financial news. And then you're, uh, you're, you seem to be very interested in the SDGs and, and this whole um, corporate governance thing. And then you're also tied in with the Japanese business lobby and your offices are right next to each other in downtown Tokyo, all this stuff. So what happens? What is the Carnegie, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace? Um, well, it was set up by Mr. Carnegie, a Scottish billionaire turned philanthropist or philanthropist, philanthropist, um, like a Gates type of person. But instead of making his money in computers, he made his money in steel and, and railroads and all that type of stuff. And he's a Scottish guy, so he just hates everything he has. That's that's very common for like the Scottish people. If they have a billion dollars, they'll say, ah, nobody needs a billion dollars or something like that. Uh, but they won't think about the person across the street who has a billion of something else. So there's this weird Scottish mentality where they're able to really be super industrious and create the world's most fascinating systems. And then they go, ah, get rid of it. I'm not a good Scottish accent person, but that's kind of what they do. So Mr. Carnegie, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Now, who are these people? Um, now, this is, of course, this idea of um, international organizations that work together to publish white papers that then get released into sympathetic news organizations to try to push and sway public opinion into accepting things that are all that are all that have already been decided uh, by people who know better than you. That's kind of the idea here, right? So you have these people who exist in these high positions, and they say, you know what, we just need AI cameras everywhere, but people aren't going to like that. So what we'll do is we'll have the Carnegie Endowment for Peace say it's good, and then the Nikkei Asia will say, look, they say it's good. And then at the bottom of the article, we'll say, maybe there's some security issues, but really it's good. And then everybody goes, I'm not sure if I want that, but maybe it's good. And then you have like this, uh, the the fait accompli. It's a, it, the, the realization comes true. The actualization of these plans come true through public accept, acceptance by dis, uh, dissemination of information. Um, so let's just take a look here at who are the Carnegie. Uh, now, there's a lot of people at the Carne Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. They have offices all over the world. They have a hundred, a few hundred million dollars at their disposal to kind of influence peddle. Um, now, I, there's I looked for the Japanese members. I didn't really find any. Um, I gave a cursory glance at their board and their trustees and stuff like that. They have China. They have Russia. They have all these places all over the world, but doesn't seem to be focused too much in Japan. Maybe that's where the Nikkei Asia comes in with the Kadon Ren. But let's take a look at um, the R. Uh, let's take a look here at the president of the um, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, he was previously a justice of the Supreme Court of California and an executive branch official at the Clinton and Obama administrations, the Stanley Morrison Professor of Law, Stanford University, director of Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, and co-chair of the U.S. Department of Education's Equity and Excellence Commission. And, um, ooh, uh, the president of the Carnegie, I didn't include his name, it's Louis something. Ah, the president is Mariano Florentino Cuera. That's his guy. Um... And then the chair is Penny Sue Pritzker, um, born May 2nd, 1959. And she is an American billionaire businesswoman and civic leader 
who served as the 38th United States Secretary of Commerce in the Obama administration from 2013 to 17. She is on the board of Microsoft and the chair of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This is from Wikipedia. Before entering government service, Pritzker had been involved in many Chicago organizations. That's where Obama is kind of from, including the Chicago Board of Education, Museum of Contemporary Art, and Pritzker was an early supporter of Obama's presidential candidacy, candidacy having been a friend of the Obama's family since their time in Chicago. From 2021 to 2022, she was a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. So the president and the chair of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace seem to be very kind of left-wing people, supportive of the Obama administration, their policies uh, from California, um, and also a professor of law at Stanford University for the president there. Uh, so what now, now imagine these people having to deal with Trump and all the people Trump is trying to put in, right? So you have this idea of uh, Mr. Obama in there, and then he brings in all these people sympathetic to his cause after their time in government, and they, they then get these uh, positions abroad in information peddling. Um, the same thing happens a lot with the um, intelligence officers in the United States, like Mr. Elbridge Colby, whose grandfather was a director of the CIA and has spent a lot of time in the Vietnam uh, field of operations during the conflict there. And then he gets a big position as, a, as an information peddler um, after the fact. And then his articles on white papers get published in the Nikkei News Shimbum as well. So this is a, a pattern that occurs here. And um, this is how they this is how they get people in the international field to cooperate with each other. Because a lot of the times these presidents meet with each other, they shake hands, and it's kind of like um, the manager of a construction company cutting the ribbon at the end of a building being built. He didn't build it. He didn't know it was really what was going on. He just shows up at the last day, cuts the ribbon for a photo op. And that's kind of what a lot of leaders do these days. Um, but the people who are in, in, in these efforts to push ideas and, and situations worldwide over possibly decades or even hundreds of years in some cases, they're all involved in these international wadia wadia, the, the community for international ba-da-ba, the East Asian policy for ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. And they release these white papers. And for some reason, Nikkei Asia is just really chomping at the bit to publish them, um, all of them. Back to the article here. Uh, back to pages. Um, no, no, no. Back to dissenter. Notably, the effectiveness of such technology in monitoring abnormal behavior and providing better developed deployment of police officers has been endorsed by Isao Itabashi, a counterterrorism expert at the Tokyo-based Council for Public Policy. Um, now, I did some research into Isao Itabashi, and he's been um, in the news a few times just as a spokesperson from the government talking about this type of stuff. And... Well, I'm going to read his background now, um, and we can compare it to the previous two people. Uh, so Mr. Isao Itabashi, he's the Center for Analysis and Studies Chief Analyst and Counsel for Public Policy. 
He's a member of the Committee on Nuclear Security. He's a Nuclear Regulation Authority for the NRA Japan, part-time lecturer at Tokyo Institute of Technology, and he graduated with an MBA from Keio University in 1987, and he also has a Bachelor of Science um, from the Science University of Tokyo Faculty of Engineering. So he sounds like somebody who might really understand the impact of um, this type of technology. And he seems like a real person who's super smart and probably very involved on a very technical level on uh, these uh, Japanese-related police security trends. Let's just call them that. Um, But what he's not efficient or specialized in at all is international studies. So this person who's very, very focused and probably very capable at everything related to Japan, he gets put in this position where now he has to maybe consult with international partners to decide how to incorporate um, nationwide surveillance technology uh, in a Japanese way. And he runs into these people from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace via the Nikkei um, Japanese newspaper. And that's when they kind of can get their influence into him ahead of anybody else. Like I said earlier, imagine if Trump was still in there and filling up these roles that would that would have like these uh, nests of, of political um, hibernation inside of his administration that would erupt after he leaves office and take over these roles in these Carnegie Endowment type places. I mean, it would totally change the entire look on many facets of these international cooperation efforts. Um, let's take it. So uh, the National Police Agency uh, plans to carry out tests on these AI integrated cameras within the fiscal current fiscal year set to conclude in March 2024. These cameras are capable of behavior detection and facial recognition. However, in a bid to protect privacy, only the former will be utilized. A decision in alignment with recent EU regulations, there we go, is the EU, do you think, aside from maybe Viktor Orban, (laughs) do you think that they're all super crazy Trump supporters? No, they love regulations. They're all these Brussels-style bureaucrats who um, are really chomping at the bit to monitor everybody. Um, that limit the use of facial recognition due to potential privacy concerns. Now, there are the capabilities of these cameras, behavior detection and facial recognition. Now, because of the strict um, security policies uh, in place by the Japanese constitution, uh, just monitoring people's faces and then sharing people's faces is actually uh, has a big no-no factor all throughout Japan. Uh, pretty much everybody I tried to introduce this idea into at the telecommunications company said verbatim, this is great technology, will be very difficult to use in Japan because of the privacy laws, everybody. But the idea of behavior detection. Now, what would this would be would be somebody um, looking both ways and ruffling through a bag before going up to some security um, agents um, at, a, at a political speech. You're not monitoring their face. You're monitoring their behavior. And so, or if somebody pulls out a knife somewhere, the camera can capture that. And so it's not your face that's being captured. It's the knife in your hand. Now, when in terms of laws and security analysis, the knife in your hand is very different under these policies compared to the data on your face, your biometric data. 
So you'll, if you're a criminal and you are caught with the facial recognition technology, you might be able to present a case saying my constitutional rights were violated and you could be released. But if your face was not part of the equation of the um, anti-crime uh, fighting uh, technology and AI and camera surveillance, but the fact that you had a knife in your hand, well, then now you cannot defend yourself in court because the knife is not really part of your personal biometric data. Quite the opposite, right? It's just an object. Um, all of these things, kicking somebody, act of violence, uh, precursor to crime, certain glances, um, activities, uh, tracing, you know, behavior detection. This could even be walking. So, you know, they're looking at your boots as you travel from place to place throughout the country before you end up committing some sort of crime. They're not looking at your face. They're looking at your, your boot behaviors or something like this. So in a way, it's a, a, anonymizing the data where they take everything about you. They just strip your face away from it and now they can monitor you 24-7. That could be the idea here. Um, the other idea would be, well, you have all these cameras in place and if they're just always monitoring everything all the time, it's going to create so many false positives, the police will just end up missing so much actual crime. So once that um, the crime has actually been identified, then the police would be alerted to the actual crime, a car accident or a stabbing or um, people fighting each other in the street. Hey, we're detecting fists uh, being swung in the air. Well, let's send the police there. Uh, then that would be a way to kind of introduce this, like the thin blue line idea in society, you know, where the police are kind of everywhere and then you're on one side of the blue line safety or the other side of the blue line being prosecuted or kicked in the ass. Um the same thing could be applied with the thin blue line in the AI surveillance systems where if I'm walking around and even if I um, end up uh, knocking an old lady over by accident, I might not be um, immediately prosecuted or monitored or have my face shared into criminal databases. But if somebody pulls out a knife, then that knife is captured by the camera and then put into a criminal database with geolocation tagging and so on. And then that could be used as evidence. So the... The, the thin blue line in the terms of an AI surveillance state could be an effort to control this amazing technology, but also prevent it from just being used by some future administration as a totalitarian means to extract their, uh, exact their wishes onto a population that may be voting for something, but you plan on delivering something entirely different. We always have to think about these things with this type of technology because it is indeed that powerful. That's, that was the kind of a, what I was hoping to get to. Um, it isn't. This is back to the article. It is imperative to note that while the use of AI surveillance technology can prove to be an asset enhancing security measures, it also raises critical questions about privacy. <laughs> so that's what I mean. They always put that at the very end. It's a concern about privacy, but this um, reclaimthenet.org seems to be uh, the anti-dystopian source. And I'm going to include the Asia Nikkei. It pretty much is the same thing as this article. It's just a lot more um, involved uh, in terms of like Japanese sources and getting more into the uh, details that might not actually be that important. So well, that, that went pretty well. I thought that was pretty smooth. Um, so that is society, Japan Society 5.0 version 1. Let's just take a break. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial
artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving. All right, I just needed a break. So uh, what I actually should conclude with and say, that idea with the thin blue line would have to be a very domestic-oriented um, solution. But the idea of um, uh, kind of warding off the influence from these international efforts, like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is obviously filled with um, American left-wing interests at the moment, you can present the data, but you don't have to go along with the agenda. So hopefully that these uh, Japanese people who are very competent in their field don't get sucked into the allure of this like sexy equality for everybody, but it just creates a mess everywhere it goes and leaves everybody with less money and uh, more confusion. I don't really see a positive outlook here. What I wanted to do next is um, focus on quantum computing. Now, I didn't know that quantum computers were actually real, but, but they are, it seems. Um, this comes to us, uh, we got Japanese Joint Research Group launches quantum computing cloud service. This comes to us from the Japanese government, the National Institute of Information Communications Technology, um, and uh, I'll be posting this on the website. I'm not going to go into it, but it, it says a consortium of joint research partners, including RECAN, the National Institute of Advanced Science and, and Technology, and the National Institute of Information and Communications Technology, Osaka University, Fujitsu, and Nippon NTT Docomo, not Docomo, NTT announced the successful development of Japan's first superconducting quantum computer starting in March 27th, 2023. I didn't know that. I, I always thought quantum computing was kind of this uh, buzzword, but in fact, it's it's not. So it's real now. Now, I have um, from the NHK this idea of quantum computing um, being used to drive efficiency and mixed cargo trucking. And I'm going to play it here. It's just a minute-long report, but it kind of shows how um, removing the middle managers from our society with quantum computing might actually just be what we really, really need. And then we can get rid of them forever. Let's listen in. NHK. The power of a quantum computer has been harnessed in Japan to make uh, mixed cargo trucking more efficient amid a shortage of drivers. The initiative is being led by Tokyo-based Nex Logistics in Japan. The technology enables participating businesses to share trucks and jointly ship more than 1,000 types of products. A quantum computer calculates how to efficiently load a wide variety of package shapes and contents. Figuring that out used to take two to three hours, but the powerful computer can do it in just 40 seconds. The warehouse also has self-driving forklifts equipped with cameras and sensors to unload goods from trucks. Freight trucking is very inefficient, with persistently low revenue per driver and truck. We want to use this technology to automate the process so that fewer people and trucks can transport large amounts of cargo. 
The company says the system also improves working conditions for drivers by cutting waiting times while cargo is being loaded and unloaded. <laughs> that last one there. Sorry, truckers, you don't get to sit around as long as you used to. It's called work efficiency for the betterment of you. Um, but there we go. My whole stance on uh, the AI revolution is when it's pointed at people and their minds and their ideas, it's just craziness. You can't figure it out. But when it's um, aimed at items and logistics and uh, systems that repeat and, and, and are known and are already collected into a database, it's really good at that. And with the amount of things being shipped around the world, you know, just increasing and increasing and increasing, having it um, managed by AI instead of some person who might have been transferred into a position who is maybe not very good at it and does it for a few years and then leaves and the next person's better. And then why not just automate it? Why not just say we have these items that need to get from here to here and the quantum computer knows how to just put all that together and then the humans go, let's load it up in the truck and go. Or the even the robot forklifts now can do a lot of that. But still, there's not a lot of people. I used to work in shipping and receiving when I was in university. It's uh, There's a lot of weed smoking that went on in there. <laughs> and um, a lot of people hated their jobs. Uh, people would throw microwaves around just for fun and then give them to people that came in and bought them and things like that. There's a huge amount of abuse that goes on with this stuff. And uh, managers end up having to train a whole bunch of people all the time who just end up smoking a ton of weed and then quitting a few weeks later. It's actually probably something that should be automated. So I commend these efforts and uh, we, we have to deal with this technology somehow. So by putting the thin blue line into the AI networks as a form of controlled policing or when instead of aiming the AI at our minds and trying to figure out our emotions, uh, we aim it at the things in the logistics around us to make our society more efficient and get things to us uh, in better conditions and, and faster and things like that. It's That's the way to deal with this because it's not going away and just to kind of poo-poo it is uh, not, not smart either. All right, let's take a look. We still got a... I'll just read some of these headlines. Um, computer chip with built-in human brain tissue gets military funding. GPS-free method developed to detect position with cosmic rays. This was in Japan, where they can now find your GPS inside of buildings, uh, which was not really easy before. Um, CEO of WorldCoin says something like World ID will eventually exist, whether you like it or not. Japan publishes guidelines allowing limited use of AI in schools. And then right on the back of that, Benesse, a major Japanese education company, corporation, to launch AI service to help kids with research projects. Now, this system is going to be really stupid because, you know, Benesse and all them people don't really know how to program or do anything. It's like you know, the, the child will ask a question, I want to know about fish. The answer is, have you looked into the ocean? <laughs> it's not, not really good at all. Um, so there we go. So that is Japan Society 5.0 for today. Uh, I'll just play the clip. I'm, I'm adamant about these clips, so let's just play that. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Sist Have you thought about donating to the Japan What Podcast? 
Of course you have. Go to MatthewPMBigelow.com. Give us some traffic. Or you can go to PayPal.me forward slash Japan WUT. The link is also available in the show notes if you're so inclined. We're also part of the podcasting 2.0 infrastructure that allows you, the listener, to send Satoshi's Bitcoin micropayments from your Albi wallet directly to me or us at the Japan What Podcast. Take a look into it. It's fascinating. It's interesting. And it's bypassing big tech by using the advanced technological solutions, just not underneath some algorithmically driven uh, hellscape that makes everybody obsessed about their own systems that they think are in place, but then can just change at a whimsical note noticed by some uh, mid-level manager in a corporation at YouTube somewhere. Check it out. MatthewPMBigelow.com Podcasting 2.0 PayPal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T Alright. Should we get into that? Major business lobby to join Tokyo Rainbow Pride next year. I don't have a pride thing. Japan, uh, the Asahi Shimbun, I'm sorry, Asia and Japan Watch, and this comes to us from July 10th, 2023. Now, the idea of Rainbow Pride and, and and corporate gay pride or LGBTQ pride things is very recent in Japan. Um, I didn't think it would uh, be coming here uh, in the way that it has, but it has. And um, I, I'm I'm often skeptical about major corporations just suddenly caring about rights. You know, like uh, when I was working at the shipping receiving place, we threw away so much garbage. There was every appliance was just filled with trash, plastic and wraps and styrofoam and cardboard and just endless amounts of trash around every single appliance. But uh, stamped on every single appliance was, um, we care about the environment or uh, eco drive enabled or something like that. So it's, this is like hypocritical thing where corporations glom onto an emotionally driven um, facet of, of, of human psychology and, uh, then kind of create a system where they can say they care by pointing us at, at, at these things that they supposedly care about, and then but also continue on with their um, nefarious corporate agendas at the same time. And for, so there, there we go. So we'll have to cover um, the LGBTQ stuff more on the podcast in the future. Karuizawa, Nagano Prefecture. To show support for greater inclusion of the LGBT community, a major business lobby will officially participate in next year's Tokyo Rainbow Pride. Uh, Takashi Ninami, uh, chair of Keizai Doyaki, uh, the Japan Association of Corporate Executives, announced the decision on July 7th at a business seminar here organized by the association. Quote, I want to help create a society where LGBTQ people are accepted as they are, end quote, said Tamotsu Hiro, the president of McDonald's Holdings Co. at a panel discussion held as part of the seminar. So there, that's kind of what I'm saying is before. Okay, so um, be, be who you want to be, um, totally fine with it. The The idea of the corporatization, corporatization of it is another thing, where McDonald's still creates the world's most unhealthy food, uh, opens up everywhere, trash everywhere, waste everywhere, um, super unhealthy products everywhere, just making people's health go really bad. But we care about gay people, so we're okay, right? 
Okay, so then we're just going to continue on as usual. Five years, it'll be something else. Um, lesbian, gay, and bisexual transgender people make up 5 to 8% of Japan's population, uh, says Fumio Sugiyama, a transgender man and former member of the Women's National Fencing Team. And disagree. This is roughly the equivalent of people with one of the most common surnames, such as Sato and Suzuki, he said, stressing that sexual minorities are by no means a negligible cu customer segment. And they aren't. Um, but still, do you need a pride flag at a McDonald's to enjoy a Big Mac? I mean, if you if you own a business, I say go nuts and do whatever you want. It's, but it's just this, this thing where it's like, mm, are you, is it, is it, in genuine or is it disingenuous? That's the whole idea here. It, like when um, grunge was a major thing, and then McDonald's started having grunge commercials, as if as if they cared about Kurt Cobain or whatever. This is a pattern that kind of exists and comes and goes, and it's not really that big of a deal. Um, really, it's not that big of a deal, and by that big of a deal, I mean like the the corporate trendiness of glomming onto things. Like that's just what corporations end up doing. Um, uh, well, but anyways, that's just that. There's not really much else to say about it. Let's take a look at the next topic. Let's take a look at war. Die for the war. Everybody moves. Die for the good. For the good. Die for the war. Die for the war. This comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, their opinion section, and uh, this is Japan is ready and able to maintain U.S. naval vessels. American warships shouldn't be sailing home for repairs when a trusted ally can do the job. Um, I need to subscribe to this. So I'm not going to, but it says the U.S. and Japanese navies have trained together for more than half a century. Our strong maritime partnership helped us win the Cold War and prevent maritime conflict in the Indo-Pacific. However, new threats in the region require new solutions. So this idea of, um, the, uh, of Japan aiding more and more um, American wartime efforts is uh, increasing. And this is another one that's even more interesting for me. This comes to us from abc.net.au. So this is ABC uh, Australia, not ABC News, um, you know, America. Japan to fire advanced ship-killing missile on Australia's shores. Japanese, when was this published? Uh, July 18th, 2023. Japanese forces will fire their most advanced anti-ship missile into Australian waters for the first time, ahead of large-scale multinational military exercises that begin later this week. Um, Japan participating, this is me, Matt Bigelow, uh, MatthewPMBigelow.com. 10, 12 years ago, Japan would be providing fuel to ships. Like they would send a fuel ship out into the, some sort of gulf somewhere to help with refueling efforts because they weren't allowed to kind of under their constitution, their peace constitution, to, to participate in live, you know, more uh, aggressive forms of behavior. But they're normalizing it now in Japan where now it's okay. The Japanese self-defense forces can test missiles in Australia. Have they always been doing this? I don't know, but it's being pushed into the public domain more and more. The ABC uh, can reveal that Japan's self-defense forces is... Uh, preparing to soon conduct a live-fire demonstration of its Type 12 surface-to-ship missile at a weapons range in Jervis Bay, south of Sydney, Australia. Friday's activity will occur on the same day ex Exercise Talisman Sabre 2023 is formally opened. 
uh, Chief of Staff for Japan's uh, Ground Self-Defense Force, General Morishita Yasunori, has told the ABC his country's participation in the biennial military exercise is expanding. Quote, Exercise Talisman Sabre is important because it strengthens cooperation with Australia and the U.S., which will help maintain and strengthen a free and open Indo-Pacific. Ah, the free and open Indo-Pacific is generally code word for the New World Order and for containing China. General Yasunori said in a statement. Um, I believe the firing exercise in conjunction with the Australian Navy will enhance a high level of trust between Australia and Japan. Um, said, you know, that Talisman Sabre exercises director Brigadier Damien Hilm confirmed the JDSF would fire its Type 12 SSM from uh, Beecroft Weapons Range into the East Australia exercise area off of Jervis Bay. And I think that's all we need to do. And then it also it says South Korea to showcase rocket technology and uh, related stories as Australia seeks to include Japan in AUKUS defense pact with U.S. and U.K., so this idea of Japan kind of edging more and more and more into the uh, sphere of, of official weapons operations is just becoming accepted. This, I guess people are just so beaten down now in Japan or they just no longer care or they don't even know that uh, they're just going along with it or they're not even aware of it or they just kind of go, yeah, because of China, we might have to be doing such things. The reality has changed um, the last one for today will be from Unheard, uh, unheard.com. And this is uh, signs, the clue China is preparing for war. This it says, Xi is laying the groundwork while the West looks away. This comes to us from Professor Edward Lutwak, and he's a historian and strategist. In a sinister reversion, oh, this is great. <laughs> this is a little, this is opinionated. In a sinister reversion to the very worst days of Mao's rule, communist official parties, communist party officials across China are blindly obeying orders to rapidly increase the supply of arable land by any means possible. As with the great leap forward that starved tens of millions to death in a futile attempt to produce more steel to industrialize overnight, the official aim is straightforward, to grow more grain. Um, I'm not actually not going to read this, uh, but it, I'll be posting it on to Matthew P. and Bigelow if, if you're interested. I think the, the key to understanding Japan, or sorry, China's push for war is just it's, you know, massive amounts of uh, war preparations that it's doing with its navy, with its army, with sending uh, massive amounts of production to Russia to try to probably field test a lot of the gear it's been developing. It's drone networks that China's been developing. Like, uh, I'm not sure this unheard thing needs to needs to be so opinionated. And uh, Edward Lutwak, I'm not sure about this guy. I should have I should have vetted him a little bit more. Military history, international relations. This whole thing about um, what I don't like about the West in a lot of the Western scholars is that they're so connected to ideas of the past, like the Cold War, the Great Leap Forward, and things like that. China's a very different country now. If you go there, it's astounding how much advanced technology they have. And a lot of people will say, yeah, but you go out of the, the those big cities and you're in... in, in da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, I, I know, I know. But uh, it's a very different place now from, 20, uh, from 2010, from 1980, from 1960. Totally different place. Um, so to always kind of compare, it, it's like kind of trying to say like, uh, 
uh, Abu Dhabi in 2023 compared to Abu Dhabi in 1910. It's like, well, there's just a bunch of camels in the desert in 1910, maybe some huts. Like, it's a very different place now. I'm not sure if we can continue these comparisons, but so many scholars from the West are stuck in this constant Cold War kind of boomer con um, perspective on the world. And it's a very different world. Like, uh, you know, we had the Iraq war, we had the Afghan war, we had uh, Libya the, and all of these things in the past 15, 20 years that have a lot more connection to what's going on in China and the rest of the world now than, than these, these kind of more domestic things that were happening way back then. And just probably this Edward Ludwig guy is probably trying to tie in it all, tie it into all of that, but to always kind of approach a completely different situation from the past with something that's completely different now. I don't, I, something that this Western people are really bad at doing. Like they, they just kind of, they don't get it. They don't get it. And that's part of the problem. Uh, all right. Well, that's going to leave it up. Do we have anything else for today? Um, stupid Gaijin of the week. Let's do it. Stupid Gaijin. Stupid Gaijin of the week. Unauthorized operation of Vietnamese girls uh, bar, three men arrested in Tokyo Taito Ward. At a girls bar in Taito Ward, Tokyo, three men, including the manager, were arrested by the Metropolitan Police Department for having a Vietnamese female employee entertain male customers without permission. Three people, including Tomoyuki Kumegai and the owner of the Vietnamese bar Bui Bui Vien in Ueno, uh, said Nguyen Thi Phuong, 24, who is a Vietnamese national and his wife and manager, are suspected of having a Vietnamese female employee entertain male customers without permission. According to the Metropolitan Police Department, Kumagai and others were advised to obtain a business license when an on-site inspection was conducted by the police in December last year, but they were arrested this time because they continued to operate without permission. The Metropolitan Police Department believes that they would have sold about 100 million yen since October... What is that? I don't know about the conversion rates right now. 1 million yen is... $10,000. Maybe... Hundred thousand, a million bucks, maybe a million bucks. Yeah, a million bucks uh, since October 2021, as the three people have admitted to the investigation. So, this is the thing about the stupid gaijin of the week. My brother said, "Hey, you should stop." Then I get messages from other people, "Hey, I like it." So, the, my idea is that you can't promote if you promote something like I'm a essentially I'm a Japan promoter. If you're promoting Japan, um, you you become a bootlicker. But if you present kind of a dirty side or a negative side or I'm, I'm like, I'm not a gaijin lover for Japan. You know, I'm just somebody who lives here who has vested interests here who wants to see those interests increase and, and come back onto me in, in the future. But the, this, so today's idea of the stupid gaijin of the week, if you find yourself as a gaijin worker and the police come in and tell you to change your business and your boss doesn't change your business, you have to leave that business. You have to go. You have to go and do something. You can't stay there. You if, And maybe this woman was trafficked, so I'm not sure about that. But if you continue to operate while the police are coming in and telling your bosses what to do and you just still go along with it because you're getting some money, it's going to be short-lived. So if you don't, if you, if you continue along that path, there's going to be like a, a wall that you're going to hit. And he'll become the stupid gaijin of the week. Stupid gaijin of the week. 
All right, that's going to wrap it up for today's uh, podcast, Japan What Podcast, Matthew pmbigelow.com. Make sure to go over there, send us a donation, paypal.me forward slash japanwt. Uh, send us some traffic, check out the links, check out some of those photos. Maybe you'll see some sexy girls over there. Hmm. Uh, thank you, Mr. Listener and Ms. Listener. Until next time. Ja. Mata. De. Atsui desu ne. Atsui desu yo. I am the king of the ring. <laughs>